o'clock. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. Neil Garfield, and this is Thursday, June 23rd, 2016. Happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there. Tonight, we have trial lawyer Charles Marshall returning, who has been building on his successes in the California courts, and who will be speaking with us about, uh, about in particular, a decision that just came out of Massachusetts uh, from the appellate court that specifically and expressly dovetails with some of the decisions in California. In fact, they name them, and and other states as well. It turns out that the pooling and servicing agreement, known as the PSA, is relevant, despite probably a million rulings to the contrary, um, and that its provisions can be used to show that the assignment is void if the claim is that the, is that the loan was transferred to a remic trust. The Massachusetts Court of Appeals acknowledged it was confirming, conforming to views held in other states and, and cited to them. I think the decision is extraordinarily important because of the reasoning that they used and the citations that they made to other cases. California seems to be taking the lead for the country, uh, although this decision from Massachusetts might create a balance from one end of the country to the other. Even as trial lawyers try to grapple with their own resistance to what they consider to be technicalities and splitting hairs in defenses raised by homeowners. I think it's starting to dawn on people that the homeowners who signed what they thought were loan documents were, in fact, just pawns in a much larger epic fraud that was committed by the mega banks that we refer to as Wall Street, even though not all of them are physically on Wall Street. In uh, in May, the California Court of Appeals for the Fourth Appellate District issued an opinion that allows a homeowner to sue for wrongful foreclosure when the foreclosure is instituted by a non-party and where the assignment is defective, in other words, where the assignment is void. And we talked about that last week with Mr. Lopez in the Sierrata decision, but 
I know that Charles has more thoughts on that subject as well. The Sierrata decision reversed the trial court's uh, order in which it sustained the defendant's demurra, which is the equivalent in California to a motion to dismiss, and did not allow leave to amend the complaint for the homeowner. And I've been getting a lot of uh, correspondence and a couple of calls, so I want to repeat something that I said last week about choosing and keeping a lawyer. Many attorneys have contacted me to ask me to repeat the golden rules that I gave last week. I don't know if these are actually golden rules, and I'm not sure these are all the rules, and some of them may not apply in some situations. But everybody is looking for a lawyer who, as we say, gets it. And by getting it, we mean a lawyer who understands that the homeowner is not a deadbeat and that the homeowner, in most cases, was duped into signing papers that were not reflective of any actual monetary transaction between the party on the note and mortgage uh, that is pretending to be the lender and the borrower. If, if there's nothing between the pretender lender and the borrower, then it's not up to the court to fill in the void. It's up to somebody who actually has legal standing, which means that they're, they have to have some kind of legal injury in order to have any claim against the borrower, much less the right to foreclose against the property. And I think that it's, it's also true that uh, in in many, many, many cases, the vast majority of cases in non-judicial courts, there have been foreclosures that could never have made it even uh, through uh, a judicial uh, foreclosure, uh, even where the uh, uh, the judge and the court system there were biased towards the bank. It's no secret that there are not enough lawyers around who want to take these cases. Part of the reason for that is the very long intake process when compared with other kinds of cases. So here are some of the rules to keep in mind. This is the last time I'll do this. When you're seeking legal representation. First, the lawyer is not your therapist. Of course, he or she wants to know if you've suffered emotional distress, and that will come out over the term of the case. Don't make the interview or phone call so long that the lawyer feels you're going to need a lot of hand-holding, because then that lawyer is going to, quote, higher fees or not want the case at all under the supposition that you wouldn't be willing to pay the higher fees for the extra time needed to keep you calm. Second, have a review and report done by somebody who does get it and knows how to put the facts together so that your prospective lawyer can quickly determine your status and quickly determine whether he or she can actually do something of value for you. Third, 
Be informed. Be well read. Process the information. But don't think you know more than the lawyer does. If you do, you're in the wrong place. If you actually know more than the lawyer, you shouldn't be in the office. But what you don't know has filled thousands of volumes of case decisions, statutes, rules, and regulations. Lawyers spent three years going through, not thousands of volumes, but hundreds, um, in learning this, and in the course of practice, they are far more informed than you are, especially with respect to one particular area of the practice of law, and that is procedure. Procedure is where homeowners are losing and banks are winning. Procedure is what needs to be front and center in any challenge to the so-called banks, servicers, or whoever it is that's saying that they have a right to foreclosure. Fourth, go to a lawyer as soon as possible. Waiting to the last minute only makes the job harder and much less likely that the lawyer is going to take your case because it might require him or her to drop everything else. Fifth, if you have been proceeding pro se, in other words, representing yourself and you're not a lawyer, and you've already filed a 200 or 300 or 500-page complaint, don't think that, that your prospective lawyer is going to read it, and don't think or believe that he or she has any interest in hearing about what's in it. Every good lawyer knows that their job is to narrow the issues to the ones that are most likely to get the most traction. More is not better. When you use a shotgun approach, you are immediately tagged as a, a troublesome litigant, and if your attorney does it, then the attorney is tagged by the judge as being inexperienced and not well-versed in trial work. Sixth, don't expect miracles. The deck is stacked against homeowners, even with the decisions that we've been discussing the last few weeks and the decisions we'll discuss tonight. Seventh, the lawyer doesn't owe you anything. The fact that you have been screwed over by the banks and maybe even some lawyers doesn't mean that the next lawyer that you want to take your case has any obligation to take your case or to do it for free or to do it on contingency or anything else. It is your case and not theirs. Don't try to sell them, by the way, on how much publicity they're going to get when they win your case. 50% of their clients have told them that. Eighth, choose carefully. If you run through several attorneys, no lawyer is going to take up a case that has been litigated poorly or in which you have ended up in an argument about strategy or tactics. The problem here is that the uh, often, and certainly in my position, uh, 
we get in the position of having to do what I referred to last week as legal proctology. We have to undo all the damage that's been done, which frequently is actually more work than litigating the rest of the case. Ninth, if you don't understand what the lawyer is saying, then ask. If you still don't understand, then the lawyer probably doesn't know how to present the issues well in court, and you should move on. That's the end of that. You can get this uh, uh, broadcast by going to Blog Talk Radio and clicking on this broadcast and uh, uh, sending it to your friends if you like. I'm broadcasting live from Broward County, Florida, brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Lending Lies, Amgar, and the Garfield Firm with offices in South Florida. And this show is specially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners like you. Thank you, and a special thank you in this political year when everybody's hitting you up for contributions. I appreciate the people who have uh, supported us. And for those of you who are not contributors, we ask that you hit the donate button on the blog or call t- our main number, 202-838-6345, and pledge whatever you think you can afford. One housekeeping note, we discontinued the West Coast number of 520-405-1688 because it was one telephone too many. Charles Marshall is an attorney with offices in San Diego County and satellite offices in L.A., San Jose, and Lake Tahoe. He's been on the show before and has always been a source of insight and perception based upon his actual practice and not merely theorizing. He has clients throughout California, and he practices in all four federal California districts. And I believe he has appeals pending in the Ninth Circuit and the uh, six state appellate districts and lawsuits moving forward in almost every county in California. He handles uh, foreclosure-related cases, including California plaintiff foreclosure cases, wrongful foreclosure, defense lawsuits uh, from the, uh, against the usual suspects, Chase, Wells Fargo City, BOA, etc., and select bankruptcy and unlawful detainer matters. Charles, welcome back to the show. Uh, it's great to be on again, Neil. And uh, uh, I, I think the uh, well, actually, the first thing I'd like to do with you is to let you comment on my golden rules about selection of an attorney. Uh, I think you actually laid out uh, essentially every angle that uh, a borrower going into this situation needs to consider in terms of how they're going to get representation and what they should look for when they're looking for an attorney to to handle their case. And, you know, just to reiterate briefly on some of the points you touched on, you know, the emotional distress issue, yes, it's it's important to, to let the attorney know some of the basics of that. 
but every every potential litigant needs to know, you know, whether they're on the plaintiff side or the defendant side, whether they're about to sue or have already been sued, that emotional distress is always a derivative cause of action. What does that mean? It means that it's only going to have traction. It's only going to have merit if you can prove out underlying causes of action related to wrongful foreclosure, related to the broken chain of assignments, that type of thing. If you can't prove those out, you're never going to get emotional distress damages. So the emotional distress always, always has to be in the background, even though I know for for those bringing their cases, it's probably in the foreground. Yeah, I think one of the mistakes uh, that uh, lay people make, which is it's not a mistake really in logic, but uh, uh, but it is a mistake at law. Uh, just because the service that drove you crazy with making demands that were wrong or presenting documents that were defective or making you jump through a thousand hoops for modification and then they take three payments from you and they say we're not going to give you a permanent modification or even in the case some cases I have where they have broken into homes uh, on the so-called mistaken assumption that the ha- house was abandoned and then they trashed the house and so forth. Just because they did that is not a defense to foreclosure. It sounds like, to many people, ridiculous. How could that not be related? But it it isn't. And it doesn't mean you have a you don't have a claim against them for wrongful foreclosure, for trespass, or whatever the case may be. But none of those things are actually a defense to foreclosure, and I think that's one of the things that the even over court uh, was stating, uh, but I think they failed to make their point uh, in trying to limit the scope of their decision uh, to post-foreclosure sale cases. So, uh, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Is there something else you wanted to talk about in terms of the uh, uh, relations between the uh, attorneys and their clients? Uh, The other aspect is it is absolutely critical to have loan analysis done up, whether you call it uh, a loan audit, whatever terminology you use, your attorney or somebody the attorney contracts with, and frankly, I think it's better if the attorney is using somebody who independently works up the analysis, Uh, because this is a specialized area, and you need specialized details and very specific uh, chain, chain of title issues laid out, defined, broken down, and exposed. And, yeah, if if an attorney's setup is such that he has somebody on staff who handles that and he turns it out on that basis, fine. But no attorney who's handling a lot of these cases and, you know, frankly, the attorneys who are are doing this this, uh, area of law effectively typically have a lot of cases because there's so much demand. Uh, But just to finish the loop on that, uh, 
attorneys are typically not doing this analysis just in terms of their working up the pleading itself. They're coordinating with a specialist. That's what you need to look for, uh, you know, as a borrower in this area. And you need the specialized loan analysis. And then the other aspect that Neil touched on uh, that I think is very important, you know, that you touched on, Neil, is that legal procedure is absolutely critical and king here. And we won't talk about it in great detail on this particular program, but discovery is a huge both point of leverage for our side, but it's also a potential Achilles heel. And particularly where uh, borrowers are handling their own cases, discovery can actually absolutely kill your case. Whether you're on the plaintiff's side or the defendant's side, if you don't handle discovery properly and the rules are very strict and very precise and very arcane and, frankly, both convoluted and archaic, if you don't handle those you know, procedural matters just right, you're going to get maybe two, maybe three passes to get it right, but then the opposition and the judges will really come down on you. Uh, if you don't ultimately get it right, and that that involves specialized, you know, reworking of your documents so that it comports with legal rules. I mean, those are just basics of legal procedure, but you, it, it's not intuitive. It's this is not intuitive stuff. It's it's just highly specialized. That's the way it is. I obviously I agree with that. So let's get into. Um, uh, I, I like what you, your phrase, the push-pull going on uh, post-Ivanova, uh, because we've seen uh, trial cases where uh, the judge has resisted Ivanova. Uh, we've seen trial cases where the judge has grudgingly accepted it. I haven't heard of a single case where a judge enthusiastically accepted it. Um, what is your perception, since you are so active in this practice, as to where we stand right now? I think where we stand right now is consistent with trends I've seen over the last two to three years. And that is what I'm talking about, my California practice, where I'm located, where I do practice. Northern California cases, whether federal or state, uh, yes, they're not embracing the Ivanova decision. That would be too strong a word. But they are following it to some extent, and they are moving cases and causes of action forward based on Ivanova, based on Kashgar, you know, connected with the pre-auction cases um, that it, you know, it informs on because Kashgar is a pre, pre-auction pre case. By the way, even with judges now, I'm, I'm not necessarily trying to change the, uh, the vocabulary in this area, though. If that happens, I won't complain. I think there's inherent ambiguity in the terminology pre-foreclosure and post-foreclosure. I mean, at one level, you can read the Ivanova decision to say pre-foreclosure means anything that happens in a legal case, whether it's filed or not, before an actual auction. And post-foreclosure is the auction event itself. But 
not just in the lay community, but in the legal community, a lot of people will use the term pre-foreclosure to say if something is going on before an NOD is filed, a notice of default, then that's pre-foreclosure. But once the notice of default is filed and then, you know, you've got a sale that coming in California, you know, roughly three and a half, four months from that time, uh, that's actually the triggering event. So I'm using the term pre-auction and post-auction. I just find that's a lot more clear. And what I'm finding is Northern California judges are often acknowledging Kashgar. And remember, Kashgar was transferred from the California Supreme Court back to the lower appellate court for review consistent with Ivanova and clearly the court intends that the fact that Kashgar is a pre-auction case not be something that that the um, the lower appellate court should just shut the case down on. Otherwise, they would have just said, the California Supreme Court, that is, they would have said, okay, Kashgar, you're done. You're a pre-auction case. Look at Ivanova. We're not we're not letting you go any further. Instead, they did exactly the opposite. Um, and then, in terms of this binary of Southern California, Northern California, I had a hearing just last week. I had an appellate hearing uh, for a case I stepped into, and with that particular hearing, the judges out of San Diego, and these judges, you know, unfortunately, are as pro lender as any in California, including L.A., including Orange County. And they were, they they just rolled their eyes about Kashgar. And, and one judge in particular who was uh, one of the judges handling Kashgar is what he represented to me, um, claimed that there was no evidentiary value at all from Kashgar being sent back to the lower court, which is absurd on its face. Because, again, it would be one thing if the California Supreme Court ruled against Kashgar and said, no, your case is post, you know, your case is pre-auction, therefore it doesn't even line up on the facts with Ivanova where the case was post-auction. You know, therefore we're not even going to consider your case. Instead, it was explicitly sent back to the appellate court to review in light of Ivanova. So for this appellate panel judge at the hearing that I was at last week, to just completely discount Kashgar, I mean, I think it's absurd, but this, this again shows that, you know, we're in a fight here, and I think everybody listening to this program knows that. I mean, this is a long-term war that we have with the servicers, with the lenders, you know, with the pretending entities who are trying to railroad, you know, our people, our borrowers, our clients, and take their homes illegitimately. And this war is not going away. Uh, we're going to continue to fight as best we can, and every decision that we get in our favor, we will try to capitalize on and use to the fullest extent of the law. Uh, but I don't think anybody in the listening audience should have kind of misplaced enthusiasm. Yes, we always have to be enthusiastic about our wins, but we also have to be mindful that this is a fight. It's going to continue to be a fight, and we're going to have to continue to be smart 
and specific in how we handle everything, you know, to ultimately win for clients and for, you know, for, for the rule of law, all the things that you, Neil, have talked about in terms of vindicating the rule of law here so that uh, lenders and services are actually held accountable for the massive mortgage meltdown that they created. You know, uh, one of the things that uh, I've started thinking about and which you got me thinking about again uh, with what you just said is that, yes, there's a war between homeowners and all these entities most of them are empty sham conduits, but some of them are real companies. Yes, that war exists. But I think we're seeing that war reflected in an odd way between trial judges and appellate judges. It seems that we're going through a period here where U.S. Supreme Court just in Jesenowski says, here's the way rescission works, and nobody follows it. We've got the even over court that says, here's the way it works when you've got a void assignment. And most of the judges are still resisting it, even though it is black letter law that when your superior court has told you something, that's your boss. you got to do it, whether you like it or not. And yet the trial judges are, are in essence, uh, stomping their feet, saying, I won't do it. Do you, do you have that sense when, when you're litigating? Uh, I do, Neil. Uh, you know, on the other hand, every win we get, it's something that we can stick into our quiver of uh, arrows, so to speak. And, and eventually, you know, as we keep pushing for our clients in all these cases and on all these matters, we're going to increasingly get wins. We're going to increasingly convert judges over to our side. And I am seeing judges, it, it is mainly in Northern California, I have to repeat that. I mean, most of the judges that are coming around and the California landscape are, are in Northern California. On the other hand, you know, the Sierra decision is also out of San Diego. So that's a very favorable uh, decision for homeowners. And, and again, I think uh, I will be speaking to that decision in a future show. Um, but for right now, one of the decisions that I wanted to talk about was Saderbach versus Chase Bank. Now, you know, going back to the dogfight that we're continually in on this, uh, Saderbach is being trotted out by the opposition consistently uh, in my demure hearings and my motion to dismiss hearings. And Saderbach was decided back in March. So it was the first substantive reversal. And here's another thing that the audience needs to keep in mind. Um, you know, the small-minded judges who are going to defend the lenders to the nth degree, they're going to use legal procedure to fight on the terrain that they want to fight on as long as possible. What do I mean by that? Well, under basic judicial law, and this is true in California, this is true of everywhere, this is true everywhere, 
when a decision comes out, if it's not a published decision, that will impact its ability to be controlling law. In fact, it won't be controlling law per se. It can still be persuasive, but it won't be controlling. Now, when Ivanova came down, that is controlling law, and it was a published decision. And Sierrata is a published decision. That one came down May 18th. But Kashgar, remember, that was just a summary transfer back to the lower court. So that's not a published decision, and a lot of judges, particularly in Southern California, are refusing to follow Kashgar. And what does that mean? It means they're saying, look, Kashgar is pre-auction. We're not following that case. Even though it was post-auction, and when my case before that judge is a pre-auction case, I'm getting pushback. I'm getting judges saying, we're not following Kashgar. It's not only is it not published, we don't even know what the appellate court is going to do with that case, which is sophistry. Uh, it's highly likely that Kashgar is going to be decided in favor of the borrowers. You know, I understand what Neil is saying. Look, part of what I'm, I'm saying myself here is that judges are all over the board and they're still quite holding on to the, uh, the lenders' positions in a lot of these cases. On the other hand, as far as the Kashgar decision goes, I think that's such a high-profile case that the appellate court there will decide in favor of Kashgar. But that, that, may, that decision may still be months away. But there's a whole line of cases out there. You know, Saderbach was decided in favor of the, uh, the servicer and the lenders, and uh, Chase Bank was the, the main institutional player there. Now, Saderbach, the big issue there was around voidable versus void. And they actually said what the Illinois court in bowling said, which was, we're not talking about just one Illinois court. There were actually several Illinois decisions, which the bowling court cited to. And just real briefly, I want Neil to jump back in here. Um, in Saderbach, they actually said on the record that, oh, well, New York trust law, when you challenge these remit trusts and you show there were late filed assignments according to New York trust law, that's only voidable. That's not void. And they said that with a straight face, just as uh, the Illinois courts did. The reason bowling is such a big deal is it's a citable decision. Yes, it's only persuasive. It's not in California for California cases. But I'm going to be citing to it because bowling makes very clear, no, under New York trust law, when you do not properly fulfill the guidelines of timing of funding the servicing uh, of the uh, pooling and servicing agreement, that type of thing, when you violate the rules on that, that makes the assignments that specifically derive from those purported assignments void. That's just voidable. It has to be void. The, uh, I, I, I find it incredible that this issue is being treated seriously. If the trust... A, if the trust did not acquire the loan, didn't pay for it, then the transfer 
paper, the assignment, or whatever is being used is is meaningless. It's just a paper transfer. It's a sham. And if the terms of the trust prevent the trust from accepting loans after the cutoff date, and each one of the PSAs recite that they are conforming to the real estate mortgage investment conduit uh, uh, provisions in the Internal Revenue Code, which say exactly the same thing as the cutoff. In fact, the wording in the PSAs about the cutoff date is taken from the federal statutes in the Internal Revenue Code. So, and you have a New York law that says that anything that the trustee does, that is, the legal term is ultra-virus, uh, uh, outside the scope of his authority is void. And in this case, it wouldn't just be outside the scope of his authority. It would be against the restrictions on him to not accept anything past the cutoff date because if he did, then if the investor's money had actually gone into the Remick Trust, which it didn't, but let's say it did, they those investors would not get the benefit of using a pass-through entity and would be taxed not only on interest income, however that was allocated, but on the principal as well. So if part of the money they're getting is a return of capital, then they get taxed on that at the, at the full rate for, uh, for income. So it's inconceivable to me that anyone could seriously argue that it would be possible for anyone to ratify the Ultravirus Act when nothing but bad things happen if they did ratify it. And uh, ratification is, is what's used in, in theory to determine whether or not something is void or voidable. You can't create, if you've got something, if, if you've got a piece of paper that amounts to nothing under the law, ratifying it doesn't suddenly give it life. If it's nothing, it's still nothing. It doesn't make any difference how many other pieces of paper refer to that. It's nothing, and that's what void means. So and and uh, before we get cut off here, I just wanted to ask you, Charles, about your current view of uh, overcoming legal presumptions based on so-called facially valid documents and their trustworthiness, and the test that if they're if they're lacking in trustworthiness, then you can't use the presumptions about those documents, you have to prove up the actual transaction. How are you seeing that now? Um, it's 
it's going to have a big play in Discovery that's going on. And, you know, historically, when we couldn't get past the mirror or motion to dismiss, it didn't necessarily make a lot of sense to do early Discovery. Now I think early Discovery is critical, and it can expose the fact that the institutional players on the other side don't have the bona fide documents. They can't make a predicate showing that they have any legitimate interest in or control over the relevant documents that, particularly in California, but pretty much anywhere, they have to have. They have to have that predicate showing to be able to justify taking properties to foreclosure, for instance. Yeah. Um, I, I think you're uh, uh, 100% correct on that. What, if you were going to give advice to a lawyer who was just starting out in foreclosure defense, we've only got about another minute to do this, um, what are the principal things that you think that lawyer should focus on in order to become effective? Be aggressive in litigating. And that's, you know, that's where these cases are won. That's how these appeals are wrought. I mean, you have to keep appealing. You have to keep getting in front of judges and getting in their faces and demanding that they look at documents, demanding that they look at bona fides. No matter how many times you get negative responses, no matter how many times you get intimidation tactics from the opposition attorneys, you have to always keep coming back to the fact that the documents are void, the fact that the documents aren't bona fide, the, the, the fact that the do- documents are robo-sign when that's the case, and that proper uh, you know, precedents to authentication of documents have not been met. And it just it takes a lot of tenacity um, from our side, and it's it's critical that attorneys be okay with confrontation because you're going to get lots of it. And the more you're okay with that, the better your cases are going to go. I would I, I, just to piggyback on you, and then we're going to have to uh, uh, sign off. By the way, Charles's number is six one nine seven two three seven zero seven one. Yeah, um, I have an alternate one also six one nine. Oh, what's that? Eight zero six one nine eight zero seven two six two eight. All right, good. So. I lost my thought because I interrupted myself. Um, all right. Well, we're running out of time anyway. Um, uh, I think everybody should take a, a look at the Massachusetts case of U.S. Bank versus Bowling, or Bolling, B-O-L-L-I-N-G. You're going to find that that case actually cites to many of the cases that we discussed tonight. Um, and I thank Charles once again for adding lively discussion to our show and hope a lot of good information to everyone. Um, I will uh, wish everybody in advance a happy July 4th. Um, I will not be on the air uh, next week, but uh, I think Charles will be. 
um, and uh, uh, we're going to have uh, rotating uh, uh, hosts for a while. Thank you. Yes, I'll be coordinating on that, Neil. See you next week. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.